0: Hello and welcome to Pitchmasters with me Danny Fontaine. This week I speak to Jeff Gotthelf, author of Lean UX, Sense and Respond and Forever Employable. We talk about the perils of publishing, composing stories, how to plant your flag and the tale of the human cannonball. If you enjoy the show, please take a minute to like, subscribe and review, it means the world. Jeff Gotthelf, thank you so much for joining me. You are an author, a teacher, and your work has had a massive impact on my career. How did you get to where you are today?
1: Sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me. My my story. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I always refer back to that, uh, Austin Powers, the origin story for Dr. Evil, right? Luge lessons <laughs> like that, but no, it's not that interesting. No, I mean, look, I started off as a broke musician for years. I toured with bands and, uh, sadly that doesn't pay the bills. Um, and so I got into the web, I did uh web design in kind of web 1.0 days and very quickly moved into information architecture. And then that was sort of a, a lead-in into as the web became more sophisticated into interaction design and then user experience design. And then, you know, about a decade in, um, I found myself in a leadership position, kind of middle management, leading design teams, leading UX teams. And in the position, particularly kind of in in I think my second or my third leadership role, I found myself having to build and lead a multidisciplinary UX. This UX team in an organization that was transforming from a waterfall way of working to an agile way of working. Now, the nice thing about this particular opportunity, there were two things. One, it it wasn't a huge company. It was a high growth startup. So about 400 people. So not a massive organization. So the opportunity and the likelihood of success for change was high. And then the other was I had a, a very supportive boss who said, look, we've got to figure this out. So if you get it wrong, don't worry about it and you know just keep trying as long as you're learning from what you're trying um, right. and you're progressing forward, then that's great and so the that's where sort of the seeds of lean UX were coming from was we have to do UX design work we have to do it in this new process. Nobody else seems to have any really good idea about how to do this so we're talking this is about 2008 so 2008 um, not a lot of really good experience about how to do design and agile, particularly well, lots of people trying to figure it out though. And so that was really nice. So I started writing about what we were doing and I found a community of folks who were also writing and speaking and discussing what they were doing in their, in their organizations as well. And through the help of those folks, and ultimately my, my author Josh Seiden, and now my long-term business partner and friend, He's my friend as well. I like Josh a lot. We've worked together for, for the a record, long time yeah. now. Uh, I mean, 14 years at this point, well. which is crazy. Um, uh, and uh, we were able to kind of put the seeds of Lean UX together into something a bit more formal. And it was never look. It was never put forward as this is the way, right? It was more like mm. the Mandalorian, right? I was like, there was, <laughs> you know, there, like we, th- we put it forward as this is a way. Right right? right. If, you, if you find a better way, fantastic. If you take this and you build on top of it and you make something new, amazing. And so, and, and, and that's what was ultimately codified in Lean UX, the book. And, and, you know, and since then, what's interesting is the book really transformed what I did for a living because it was successful. People started asking me to teach the material in the book. And there was so much demand on that side that it was pulling me away from doing the design work, the design leadership work, which I didn't actually mind so much because this was really interesting to me as a career path. It turned out I was pretty good at it. Like so my, like if you had asked me 15 years ago if I'd be a teacher 15 years later, I would never yes. Yeah. It did sound really foreign to me, but it turns out I'm pretty good at it. And um, and so the, largely that's what, what I've been doing You know, since basically since kind of like 2012, 2013, since the book came out, is teaching, uh, speaking, training, coaching, consulting on the ideas of Lean UX and sort of the ideas that have grown from it in in the years and the kind of the decade since then and that business has, has expanded nicely the the scope of the conversation has grown nicely we can talk about it a little bit later um but that's that's what i'm doing today which is it's fantastic and, and it's, it's really great
0: yeah i mean lean ux when it came out really caught fire were you expecting that response when you wrote it
1: no i no. I, no nobody ever does i think when they're writing a kind of a niche and a text textbook you know, right. technical yeah. book, and this was, and it was really specific. You know, this was like not only niche, but like it was like for designers by designers. So, it, Lean UX version one, right? It's now in its third edition, but first edition Lean UX was really a, the, the the target reader persona was a designer working in an on an agile team. That's what that's what that's what the the target audience was for that. Right. Um, the sort of the the bittersweet angle on the the launch of that book was that it took me ultimately four attempts at the manuscript to get o'reilly to agree to publish it mm. and it was only with josh sidon coming on board for the fourth and and mercifully final attempt at the manuscript um, that we managed to get it over the line and and published and so that's the sort of the bitter part of it. The sweet part of it is that I had 2 years to talk about this book. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. This is the content I'm out at conferences and I'm teaching workshops and and so I did manage to build up I think a significant amount of uh anticipation for it so that when it did launch there was there was kind of a big a big appetite for it. So that was the the benefit of 2 years of of bitter struggle to get, you know. 35 40,000 words that the yeah. publisher
0: was willing to launch. Well, that's interesting because, you know, you were pitching to a publisher, essentially. Yeah. What, what do you think was different the fifth time then? What what did he come in and what was the magic?
1: Yeah. So, so, look, I mean, this is the first book I I'd ever written. And so I didn't know how to write a book. Right. And, and publishers, the interesting thing about the, the pub, so publishers don't teach you how to write books. Um. They just expect you to know how to do it. They just expect you to do it. Um, You know, what was interesting about O'Reilly was I had been out speaking and teaching public classes about this material. And it turns out that publishers go to, you know, tech publishers and I'm sure every other kind, they go to tech conferences and they look for the latest topics and who who are some of the leading voices on the latest topics. And they offer them book deals. That's generally Mm. how it works. Um, the interesting thing is that my first offer came from Wiley, um, and it was largely unsolicited. Um, they, they reached out and they said, "Hey, we saw you speak at this conference. You know, we've seen you speak a couple of other times. We think this is an important topic. Would you like to write a book?" And what was interesting was, I, I was negotiating a contract with them, and I ran into Eric Reese at mm. an event. This is this is so this is twenty. It's 2010. So Lean Startup had not yet been published, but Eric was like the, the, the rocket ship that was Eric Reese, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago was like, just like starting to take off. And he said, look, I am, uh, I'm working with O'Reilly on a lean series of books. Why don't you, before you sign with Wiley, why don't you go pitch with them as well? And so he set up a meeting for me, which is really nice of him. He's been super generous to me um, many times uh, in my career. And he set up a meeting and I met with O'Reilly and I made the pitch, which was, look, this and which is basically the story I just told you, which is, look, I'm a designer working to lead design teams in a world that's rapidly changing around us. And the way that we're the way that we were used to working doesn't fit anymore. And we're being left out of the conversation. So we need to bring ourselves back in. And if we don't adjust to this new reality, we're going to be left behind. And, oh, and by the way, I've got, a have got an offer on the table. So if that you, guys, if you yeah. guys want to, uh, to get this, you're going to have to move quickly and, and decisively. And, and they did, you know, a week later, they, they put an offer that was very, very similar to the one I got from Wiley. First time authors, you know, you don't get a whole lot of negotiation room, um, you get a fairly standard deal. Um, the publishers all know each other; they've all worked. All the acquisition editors have all worked for each other, um, so they know it. And this is a mildly better deal than Wiley. But the, the the real benefit was that Eric Reese was involved in some way, and so he, like I said, he was just kind of the rocket ship was just about to take yeah. off. And so if we could get on that rocket ship, or at least on the outside of it, and hang on, you know, we were uh, <laughs> we were happy to do it. And so that's that's kind of how it ended up in that particular case. So a, a lot of sort of sort of content creation and delivery and and sharing back with the community
0: that drove demand that led to the book uh, the book deals. So in two thousand and thirteen, when the book came out, I was a designer on an agile team, and so I was your perfect target audience. Hmm. Yeah. And I read it and I saw you at conference and the concept's really quite simple, isn't it? But it really changed the way how a lot of people, especially those in the IT industry, used to waterfall processes, thought about how we can work in a new and much more efficient and productive way. For those people who haven't read it, give us the high level overview. What is Lean UX? Yeah, so it's an interesting question because what is Lean UX in
1: the first version of the book, it, it was a, a method of designing digital products and services that fit into the agile way of working. And to be more specific, it was, you know, we the way that we were used to working was fairly isolated. We had a design phase, an isolated design phase. And in that design phase, we typically would deploy the full arsenal of design tools at our disposal to do our work. We simply didn't have that luxury in an agile world. And so instead, it was opening up the design process to become more collaborative. It was um, a push to bias towards action and to bias towards bringing forward the true nature of the product and the service that we were working on more quickly, like what what could this experience be? And to collect feedback on our ideas much much earlier and much sooner in the process and then to iterate them um, more quickly with that feedback both internal feedback as well as external feedback so it's based heavily on uh, cross-functional collaboration customer feedback and the restraint to deploy only the tools we needed to deploy when and where we needed to deploy them. Really the the mantra that I learned from people like Lane Halley or Lane Goldstone now and, uh, and Janice Frazier was do less more often, mm. right? So we used to do a lot, but just once, right? And it was like the design phase was your shot to do it all. So we just sort of fired all, all the weapons, right? In Agile and Scrum at least, you've got these sprints, right? So every two weeks, whatever, one week, two weeks, three weeks, you get another shot at things. And so you don't have to deploy everything. So we do less, but we do it more often. So there's still kind of an equal amount of effort. It's just distributed over a series of sprints rather than a a unique and isolated design phase.
0: And 10 years on nearly. I can't believe it's been 10 years yeah. since the book came out. Even me, yeah. so I can't imagine what you're thinking. 10 years on, how has it evolved? I assume you haven't been, well, you've already said it's, you know, you're on multiple versions of this since since you kind of came up with it.
1: This is the third edition of the book that's published now. And the third edition has the benefit of a decade's worth of of sort of, you know, ironing out the details, trying this out and, feels like an infinite number of industries and, uh, and domains and environments and cultures, both corporate cultures, national cultures, political cultures, right? All of these types of things. Um, and the benefit of a decade of teaching it, right? So lots of people are trying this out and they're giving us feedback about it. We're out there teaching it in all of these ver- various, um, Contexts, and we're learning a lot about how the material fares, and and how how to best communicate it, how what you need to do to ensure that it succeeds inside your organization, and where we've netted out. So so over the last sort of five or six years, we've we've put together a series. We've been teaching the class and and refining the Lean UX material, and it became pretty evident that if we structure the book around the way that we teach the course that seems to work well. So we've got this idea of the lean UX canvas and the canvas came about as a series of assumptions, declaration exercises that we were doing anyway. We just kind of codified them into this kind of business model canvas type Mm -hmm. of approach. And then that's how we've, we started teaching the class. And that seemed to really resonate well because people kind of had this roadmap for the class, right, for the process for how to make it happen. And that made sense for the book. And I think since then, we've really dug deep into the agile side of things, like how to really make this work with an agile environment um, and, uh, and, and really broadened the, the target audience away from just designers to cross-functional teams, right? So I think at this point, I think I think in the first edition of the book, Lean UX was the right title for the book. I think in the third edition for, of the book, Lean UX is a bit of a, is a bit misleading because it's not just it's about user experience, right? But it's not about user experience design only at this point. It's about product management. It's about engineering. It's about leading those teams. It's about setting goals for those teams and, and managing those teams and really building on the feedback that we've gotten over the years, which is people want to work this way. But their organizations struggle to make it happen. So here's why and how to potentially get around some of that.
0: Lean UX to me, when I've when I've read the book and hear you speak, it's about you know if you've got a product, how quickly can you get it to market, and yep. how quickly can you iterate on it to make sure it's hitting the needs of the customers that are going to use it, and how can you be uh, as efficient as possible in delivering all of that as a process. Yeah,
1: I mean, look. The fundamental, the fundamental philosophy is that we are working off of a set of assumptions, right? Everything, everything that we come up with, is an assumption. It's, it's our best guess, and I know that hurts to hear for some folks, right? <laughs> but it's your best guess based on what you know right now. And and sadly, we work in an industry and in a world where the pace of change is is it's madness, right? It's it's yeah. yeah. And so, um, how do you de-risk those assumptions? How do you find out? As quickly as possible, with the minimal amount of investment, that what you're working on is the right thing to be working on or not the right thing to be working on, right? Because think about it, right? You have, um, if you're designing something, there's an infinite number of choices you can make about how to design something literally, infinite code, copy, design, uh, you know, value proposition, marketing campaigns, business model, pricing model, all of those things it's an infinite number of choices that you can make. How do you know that the choices that you're making are the best ones? Well, I rely on my experience and my expertise. Good. That means that your initial timeout, right, your initial guess is going to be pretty strong. Right? Is it going to be 100% right? Probably not. Is it going to be 100% wrong? Probably not. Right? But let's figure out where we're wrong and where we're right as soon as possible and with the minimal amount of investment because the less you invest in an idea, the easier it is to change course. And the easier it is to change course, the more willing we are to change course, right? Mm-hmm. If you invest six months in a design and you find out that it's wrong, you're like, well, we tested it wrong, <laughs> right? The customers don't know what they're talking about, right? You're, you're much more, you're much more loath to change the work. Right? But if you've invested six days in it, six hours, right? Well, you know
0: what? I put six hours in. I could put another six in, no problem. Because I love Lean UX so much, I've been thinking is there a way that we can bring this into not just the delivery of a product, but into the pre sales and the pitching side of it? I mean, we certainly have a lot of assumptions when we're pitching. And if we're pitching a multi million dollar deal, do you th- is there anything that you've ever thought about or that springs to mind how we can perhaps use Lean UX? Again, like you said, right? And and I I do sales, right, for my
1: business, right? We do sales work based on a series of assumptions. Mm. We assume the pain point we're solving for the customer. We assume the need. We assume the budget. We assume the context in which the work will be delivered. We assume the benefits it might deliver. um, And there's tremendous risk in that. Mm. And so the question then becomes, if if those are our assumptions, we've got a target buyer persona, we've got a target user persona, series of those, right? If those are the risks inherent in our pitch, how do we de-risk them? How can we find out more, right? And so what are some lightweight experiments that we can run, some tests that we can build to, to find out whether we're solving a real problem for the customer, whether we truly understand the people who are going to be using the systems that we're offering to build, as well as the people who are buying them, right? What do they need? What makes them successful? And so there's lots of opportunities I think to do that. But you could do you could do further discovery work with the client, right? If they'll let you, you could do sort of public research where you do some survey work, or or you can find people who uh, perhaps do this work at other places and interview them to understand exactly sort of how that work takes place. Um, all kinds of ways to kind of de-risk that, so that when you do finally get an opportunity to put a deliverable of some kind in front of a uh, a prospective customer, you stand a higher chance of being right. You know, mm. right. There's a lot, you know. Beyond that, it's what you're offering, how you're offering it, that type of thing, and whether or not they, you know, there's always that like, do they like us? Type of stuff that you is hard to de-risk. But but at the very least, you can come in super well prepared and say, look, we know your industry. We know the people who do this job we understand that if we make this easier for them this is what makes this this is how it'll impact you positively and so there's there's a lot that you can do before you go into the pitch to to
0: increase its its likelihood of success so lean ux aside then tell me more about your philosophies and approach to selling you you mentioned something that's really interesting there about you know it won't necessarily get them to like us how do you approach that? Is one facet of a pitch? I think there's there's a tremendous benefit in
1: being comfortable presenting ideas in front of people. Not a sense, that sounds like, oh, well, I'm pitching, I'm presenting ideas. But I'm, what I mean by that is that you can get up in front of a crowd and tell a story, right, about your idea. And that's really what it comes down to, is being able to tell a compelling story to an audience that they care about. And, 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 if you know what I found over the years is that a telling a good story is, is massively important. Um, but even more so making it obvious that you know your stuff, that there's a level of, of, of domain expertise where look, if the, if the laptop dies, if the projector dies, if, if you're just at a coffee shop and you're just having a conversation about this thing that you're offering, you can just have this conversation and tell a good story without any of those accessories, any of those sort of supporting mechanisms. Um, you stand a much greater chance of, of creating a connection with the people that you're presenting to becoming across more authentic. And, and that kind of like, uh, this is how they will like me. Right. I think that comes a long, a long way when it's obvious that you care about the stuff and that you know it. And that's been, you know, that's certainly saved my butt a bunch of times in presentations and in talks, you know, when you're on stage and like I said, like the, the, the laptop craps out or whatever, and you're just going to keep going. It's It's a big deal.
0: And do you have a certain approach to storytelling? Storytelling is a big, big passion of mine. I love hearing about how other people go about composing their own stories. So, for me, it's, it's, it starts with
1: a story, right? So if, I'm, if I, it's like I don't set out, like I don't set out in, with Keynote, right? And right. start making slides. What right. I try to do is I try to write the story first. And that's, so usually it'll, it'll start off either as a tweet or a series of tweets or maybe a blog post. I'm like, okay, and the blog post resonates and it seems like it goes pretty well. And, I, and I've managed in the blog post at least to kind of build a bit of a story arc, right and maybe i'll expand that in in prose like literally write it out and then read it out loud and see what makes sense and then and then it's like okay great how can i augment this now with some visuals what are some personal anecdotes that i can add to tell this story and then start to build the the visual assets around it but it always it always it always starts with a story And then once the visual assets are built, I will more often than not talk through the slide deck and the story out loud to someone, a colleague, a friend, my wife, uh, Josh Seiden, whatever. And as soon as you start to say it out loud, you really start to find the gaps in your pitch and in your story and in in the the thing that you've put together. Um, It's... uh, it's humbling actually, because you, like, you come out and go, okay, I got it. I wrote slides talks done. Uh, no worries at all. And it turns out that, um, uh, you've completely botched a transition or you don't have a transition at all from one point to the next, or you, you've forgotten this entire point over here. And so the more that you can treat it as a story, write it. Like I, I'm not, I'm not saying read it, right. I don't like it when people read their story verbatim out loud to an audience. That's just me. But, um, but write it down and then, and then talk it out out loud with some visuals. You'll figure out very quickly where it works and where it doesn't and how you've got to kind of smooth out the transitions.
0: I love the idea of starting out with a series of tweets. Cause that is, I assume you get in some direct feedback almost line by line when you're composing a story that way you are. Right. So tweet threads are real, you know, tweet storms or whatever threads
1: are really nice, are a nice way to do that. Um, and, and you know, It's
0: so low risk. Low risk. I was going to say, it's
1: 280 characters. Right. And it's just going to fly by in in the timeline. So if it flops, it flops. And if people hate it, well, they hate it for like 12 minutes, you know, and then it's over. Um, It's a great way to start to test ideas.
0: Are there any recurring stories or anecdotes that you find yourself using over and over because they are just powerful and that you know that they work? I mean, look, we, for me, it's, it's always trying to reach back to, um,
1: you know, unique experiences that I've had that no one else had, right? So it's, it's, you know, telling stories that no one else can tell on stage, that very few people can tell. And, you know, luckily I've done a few things in my life yeah. that offer that. I was in a touring band, touring bands for a long time. So I've got stories from that. And you know, bands are startups, exactly That's the right. same, same concept. Right. It's just a bunch of a bunch of people getting together with a crazy idea about changing the world and trying to build a business around it and dedicating everything to it. Right. And, and never wanting to give up. Um, I've done that. Uh, I, you know, I joined the circus. I, I worked in the circus for six months um, when I was 22. And uh, and I tell stories from that all the time. In fact, I did a uh, I tell the the story I tell most often is about the the human cannonball um, who.
0: Do play. tell me the story. I'll tell you please. the story. It's,
1: it's, a, it's a fantastic story. The the so the human cannonball, uh, and the story, the way that I tell it, right, it's a story about assumptions. And and the fact that we, if we don't consistently and constantly test our assumptions, things could end up disastrous. So the short of it is this. The the human cannonball in the circus, he was um uh, he worked Two minutes every show. We had two shows every day, so we worked four minutes a day. And the way that the act worked was there was a truck. Uh, the cannon was mounted on a big red truck, and uh, it wasn't an actual. It looked like a cannon, but it was spring loaded. Had a little smoke pack in it, whatever, right? And he would he would he would load in the top, and he'd wave goodbye to the four thousand children that the circus tent held every every day, twice a day. And, they, you know, they kind of cock the spring and the ringmaster would say some funny things and then and then hit it and the flash thing would go off. The smoke thing would go off and the spring would release and it would sh- it would launch him out and he would land on the other side of the the big top, the tent um, in a net. OK, that's that's the act. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. If you've never seen it before, I saw it 400 times in a row. It lost its luster, <laughs> you know, but uh, <laughs> um, and so uh, that's how it was every night and and the way the way that they knew where to put the uh, net right to catch the human cannonball every night was they had a, a dummy, a mannequin, a, a human sized doll that weighed as much as the human cannonball. and every two days every two days we were in a new place right so we do kind of stick in it be in a town for two days, pack it all up, drive overnight, set it all up again for two more days and then kind of every two days, a new place, right? So we get to a new place. They set up the tent. They drive the red truck in. They park it in the same spot every time. They aim the cannon. They put the the mannequin in the cannon. They fire it. And then wherever it lands, that's where they put the net, right? And that's how it worked every day for years. And they never really tested those assumptions beyond like wherever the mannequin lands, that's where we put the net. One night, uh, the truck, the red truck got delayed in traffic, getting to the next place, uh, location. And they didn't have time to test that evening, test the mannequin that evening. So they left it out outside overnight. They were gonna test in the morning. It rained overnight and it soaked the dummy. It soaked the mannequin. Next morning, they did exactly the same thing that they've done every single day for years. They put the mannequin in the cannon, they fired it, put the net up where the mannequin landed. And that afternoon, (laughs) tragically, In front of 4,000 children, which is horrible to even say, right? The human cannonball, like he always did, waved goodbye to these 4,000 kids. Ringmaster fired the the, the the cannon, and he sailed way past the net. He was, you know, 20, 30 pounds lighter than the waterlogged dummy. And look, the, the, the the bad news, of course, is that he was he was severely injured. Uh, okay, he he's died. alive, though. He didn't survive it. In front okay. of his kids, thank God, he didn't thank these God. kids. Um, but he was severely <laughs> injured, and he went back to Florida to to recuperate. And then he saw his um, pool boy, the guy who cleans his pool, who was just like an all American, <laughs> blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, muscly kind of guy like, hey, you want a promotion, <laughs> basically? And that's how this guy became the, the new human cannibal. No way. Yeah. Um, but, the sto- but that's the story, right? And the story is like, basically, we make these assumptions about how our business or our world or our, or our anything works, and we rarely test them. And if we don't continuously test our assumptions, things change around us, and it can end up with tragic consequences. So that's the story.
0: Yeah. What a great story. And it's amazing that people listening to this show will probably remember that story perhaps for many, many years, if not their entire lives. They'll probably forget everything else that both of us say. And that's just the power of stories, isn't it? It's, 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 It's phenomenal. I guess the trick is how do you find a story that is as compelling as that, that can actually link to some kind of business thing that you're trying to make a point about? For me, it's, I know, like, we know what we've done
1: in our lives. Right. And there are things that, that all of us have done in our lives that are interesting or that are unique to us or that were different. And I think it's it's incumbent on us to kind of challenge ourselves to find those things. So, look, I know most people didn't join the circus. Right. That's why <laughs> I tell those stories, because I have that and most people don't, right? for yeah. better or for worse. Right. Um, you know, but like when I was a kid and I know lots of other kids who did this in the U S you know, I would, I would, um, you know, for example, like, for example, up until seven years ago or so, I never, or 10 years ago, I didn't really think of myself as an entrepreneur. Right. But you look back in your life and you're like, I've actually done entrepreneurial things. Like I was in a band, right. I have several bands. Right. When I was a kid in school, I would buy the big bag of Jolly Ranchers. Do you know what those are? Those candies, they're yeah, like, they're yeah, like yeah. hard candies. Right. Um, and they were all the rage, and when I was a kid in, in elementary school, and I'd bring them to school, and I'd sell them for twenty-five cents each. You know, I'd make like five dollars on the bag, which is a lot of money for when you're, you know, ten. Yeah. You know, and you think back to those those things, and you're like, I did I did that entrepreneurial thing, when, entrepreneurial thing when I was ten, right? And you don't even consider that like a cool thing or a story to tell, but I guarantee you, some of the people that you're talking to did something similar, and it'll it'll resonate. And if not, it's a fun story. And so I think really, really challenging yourself to look back at the things that you've done in your life, and figuring out sort of what are the more interesting parts of that, and then yeah, and then relating it to those stories, right? Um, th- I think that's that's what we talked about before, right? It's those transitions. Like, right? There are videos of me on stage giving that, telling that story about the the human cannonball, and you know I rehearsed that a dozen times before i went on stage to do it because transitioning from the human cannonball story to lean ux is right. just, you know making that <laughs> turn takes practice yeah right and so i think practice it comes it comes with practice and i think that's really that's really important but challenge yourself really think through like what have you done that's interesting and make a list and some of those things will fit
0: the narrative i guarantee it have you ever gotten nervous on stage or do you get nervous going on stage um, yeah, I mean, the, it's in, it, so, so it's interesting. So
1: I just did my first live presentation a couple months ago at uh, uh, UX Vienna. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, super cool. Nice city, nice people, great event. I hadn't done a live talk in front of people in three years, right, since COVID. Right. Um, uh, so I definitely got a little bit nervous there. I've gotten very comfortable here in my home studio, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, 10 feet from my refrigerator, <laughs> like that type of thing. Um, <laughs> So I got nervous then. The other time I can remember being nervous um, was when I did Mind the product in London, because it's at the Barbican, which first of all is a fantastic like venue; it's gorgeous.
0: Yeah, yeah. But
1: for me, just the history on that stage—you know—I am a musician; I love music, and like thinking of all the people who have ever performed. But you are like Bowie's set foot on this stage. Yeah, you know, and you are like, ugh. Why am I even up here? Bowie's been up here. Like no one else should be up here, right? That type of thing. So that I got, I definitely got nervous. A couple thousand people, that type of thing. Um, but generally, look, if I'm well rehearsed, I don't get nervous, right? Um, right. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable enough now on stage, obviously from years of doing it. But I still write new talks and have new ideas. And for me, it's it's about um, being super comfortable with my ideas, right? If I, if I know what I'm talking about, if I know where the story's going, I know, I know how to land, I've rehearsed it, then, then, then it's, it goes well. I did like, I did a TEDx talk recently. It was my first one. And that's a lot of pressure, right? The, I, I don't know if everybody knows this, but the shorter the pitch, the shorter the
0: talk, right? The more difficult it is.
1: You give me 45 minutes, no problem. I could write a 45 minutes talk. Waffle
0: on for hours if you want me to. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you give me
1: 16 minutes, whoo, that's, right? You got to land the plane in 16 minutes. It becomes really tough. Um, and, you know, I wrote that talk and I practiced it and I was landing at like 19, 21, 22 minutes. Like, what well, can I cut? There's nothing left to cut, you know? And and so I think it's it's, when it was time to deliver it, it was so polished. that and and it comes from practice practice and
0: and and a a deep level of comfort with the material how do you this is a bit of a left field question how do you stay motivated in your life because it's especially hard when you're a bit of a a lone wolf and i know you work with lots of other people but when you're on stage on your own when you've got the name associated with the thing how do you stay motivated Hmm.
1: um That's a great question. Uh, You know, it's interesting. We, over the years, and I say we primarily because anything that I'm, I deliver my work, really almost all the teaching I do is with Josh's side. Not all of it, but but a good chunk of it. And the presentations, obviously, I do on my own. But um, anything that we do, um, everything that we've done over the years has always sought to improve the material continuously. So really kind of eating our own dog food, right? So continuous improvement, yeah. being a big sort of uh, theme and lean, just generally lean and agile, et cetera. We're always looking to make things better. So that's one thing. And there's always feedback from from cohorts of classes. Um, and then the other part of it is is growing. So looking for those opportunities. So our second book, Josh and I wrote together, is called Sense and Respond. And that book was literally a response to feedback that we were sensing from the market. So sense and respond was was an appropriate title for it because it's literally what we were doing, which was people giving us feedback and saying, look, you're having these very tactical conversations with us about practicing lean UX. My boss doesn't let us do this. My company doesn't work this way. And so we grew the conversation purposefully, deliberately based on that feedback to include leaders, managers, Executives, mm, right. right? To talk about how to build a kind of organization that supports lean, agile, and design thinking, customer-centric ways of working, um, and that keeps me motivated, right? So these new opportunities and expanding the conversation, broadening it out. Like I do a lot of product management training today, right? Spending a lot of time teaching kind of a leaner version of product management. Um, I spend a lot of time teaching objectives and key results. These days, we talk about it in Lean UX version three, because I believe that objectives and key results create the right environment for Lean UX to take place, right? And so the motivation comes, motivation comes from expanding the material for me and kind of growing the conversation and then and being, um, and, and then in addition, you know, really seeing the material thrive in some organizations. It doesn't always happen. Right. Mm. But but seeing the material thrive in some organizations and people coming back and saying, we did the thing that you said and it actually worked. You're like, okay, cool. That's that feels good. And that keeps us going.
0: And your latest book, which I haven't read yet, is Forever Employable. And the synopsis that I read on Amazon sounds awesome, but I won't steal your thunder by paraphrasing it. Tell me a bit about it. So Forever Employable came out of, again, sort of demand. So pe- on, on a regular basis,
1: people reach out and like, hey, Jeff, how did you get a book deal? How did you, you know, build your business? How did you generate demand? How long did it take you to, to the point where you had passive income of $1,000 a month, something like that, right? And, and those requests come in regularly. So again, that's feedback from the market, right? To me, mm-hmm. I'm sensing, uh, you know, if you want to talk about it in lean terms, it's a pull on the system, right? There's, there's, there's that people, people pulling on the system saying, we want this thing from you, right? And at first there's like one-off DM replies or a blog post here and there. But then I was like, you know what? I can write a book about this, a short book. And so Forever Employable is, is a bit of a left turn in that it's not about product design. It's more about career design. And it's about, but it is about taking um, assumptions, hypotheses, experiments, personas, um, outcomes, OKRs, right? And applying them to designing the kind of career that you want that hopefully makes you more independent of, you know, a specific employer, right? The idea is to create. A, an opportunity magnet so that you, wh- whatever's happening in your world, whether you're working in-house or you're working as a consultant, you are attracting opportunities towards you that allow you to remain forever employable. right? So no matter what happens in a the marketplace, there's layoffs right? there's a lot of layoffs right now. There is a merger, an acquisition, or there's um, a fundamental shift in, in what what people how people are consuming digital products and services, you have an inbound flow of opportunities at all times so that you're never caught flat footed. You never have to, to scramble and be like, Oh crap, I got to update my CV or uh, I'm going to be hungry here in a month. Right? Like it's, it's this idea of, of building the kind of online presence and, and authority and, and recognized expertise that ensures that there is a consistent inbound flow of opportunities to make sure that you've always got something to do a way to make money.
0: I mean, it sounds amazing. Can you share any tangible tips or advice from, from the book that people can start actually using straight away? Yeah, so
1: this, this kind of takes us back
0: to, to the conversation we we're having before, kind of about circus stories and things that you've done in
1: the past. And it's interesting, right? It's, it's a question of sort of determining what you, like, the book talks about kind of the first step in the book is called planting your flag. And the mm. idea behind planting your flag is, saying, is, is asking yourself, well, what do I want to be known for? right? So I'm the lean UX guy for better or for worse, right? That's, that's me. And I planted that flag and, uh, that's, that's who who I am. It seems like I'll remain that for a long time, right? Are you okay with that? I'm totally okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but so if you're, if you're heading out, like really thinking through kind of where do I want to plant my flag? Now it could be a professional thing, right? I want to be, you know, I want to, I want to talk about, um, I want to be like the UX design person for healthcare services, right? Like maybe that's my expertise or, you know, I, I just started following a guy on Twitter who shares Excel tips and tricks. Right.
0: Oh, I think I've seen that. Yeah. It's, and it's amazing. Yeah. He makes these like it's really amazing
1: cool. spreadsheets, <laughs> yeah. right? And you're like, Holy crap, I'm stealing that yeah. template. Right. Um, you know, but that's, that's his flag. He's decided to be the, the Excel tips and tricks guy. And it could be, look, it could be professional or it could be personal. And it's a really interesting sort of choice to make because it's a question of, well, how much do you know? And what's the addressable market size, right? Like, is, is there, a... so for example, right, when I set out to just to kind of plant my flag and, and build a, a recognized expertise around something, one option that I considered was vintage electric pianos, right? Yeah. I'm a piano niche. player. I, yeah. I, I. I used to have, I have a smaller one now, but I used to have a fairly significant collection of vintage electric pianos. I still have a largely useless amount of knowledge about vintage electric pianos. (laughs) And I seriously considered like building a presence and a recognized expertise in a personal brand around vintage electric pianos, right? Um, The reason I didn't do it is because there's probably like Twenty-three people in the world who care about that, right? Like, really? I mean, how ma- how many people care? If I had the definitive guide for vintage electric pianos, right? if I became the person who knew the most and had the most, like, how many people could that be? A thousand? right? Yeah. 5,000, right? Like it just doesn't feel like the market size there was particularly going to make me forever employable. Right. Right. And so I went, I went with the professional side of things because that felt far, far uh, more long-term and, and a much bigger addressable market size. Right. But to me, that's, that's the first question is, okay, great. What do I want to be known for? Right. Where, where do I want to plant my flag? Where are my expertise uh, and my experience? What, um, and I think you make a list. Right? You can kind of make a list. These are the, like, I'm really, I love basketball. I love vintage electric pianos. I love skiing. I'm also a good designer and a teacher and whatever, right? And you kind of get a sense of where you might be able to have kind of a unique intersection of these things. And you want to, you know, cause, cause you ultimately you're trying to get well known for that, right? And the people who've done this well are, are associated very clearly with those things like seth godin he's the marketing guy eric mm-hmm. reese is the lean startup guy jake knapp design sprints right that type of thing um we know who these folks are and so um that to me is the first step and that's a good it's a good sort of bit of the book there
0: i love it i'm the pitch guy that's what i'm going yeah, for exactly. that's my flag exactly that's guy. and without telling us the whole book uh where do we go from there and any other bits of tangible advice? I'm enjoying this. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so look, the, the the most important part of it, I think, is is this. Look, once you've decided sort of where you'd like to plant your flag, then it's about telling your story. And, and th- this is where the experimentation and the iteration and the learning really has to come in, right? So you could tell your story in an infinite number of ways to in, in in you know in an infinite number of of manners so for example right like let's say i think the, i think this is the example i use in the book you want to you want to be the the home plumbing repair person right right so uh, and so the question is are you going to write a blog post blog posts about home plumbing repair with photos maybe does it make sense to start a youtube channel is it TikTok? Right. Is LinkedIn where you want to go? Is it is it 280 character tweets about home plumbing? Look, the honest I've thoughts, but I have no idea. Right. And so run those experiments, right? Let's tweet about some home plumbing repair. See if anybody follows. Right. Stare at your phone and hit record for three minutes and talk about how to install a new shower head. You know, add in some shots of the shower head. it up on youtube see what happens right and as you start to figure out how to tell that story through what channel and in kind of what manner then you double down then you invest right and that's where this whole like sort of lean ux approach comes in right you're you've got you've got assumptions you've got hypotheses you're looking for changes in human behavior that tell you that you've reached your audience in a compelling way and that they're consistently consuming your content And then you can invest further, right? People say, well, I don't want to, it's going to cost me thousands of dollars to invest in the home studio. Then don't. You have a phone, the phone's got a video camera on it, right? Spend 10 bucks on a tripod so your video's not like this, not shaking all around. But beyond that, you know, you've got a phone, start posting those videos. That's how everybody started. You know, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, I think, made a hundred videos about wine Screaming in a cyberspace that nobody watched before, people started paying attention to him. So it's just it's about consistency and iteration and finding that that channel that makes sense.
0: And who who are the, some of the big inspirations or, or even heroes in your life? Inspirations when I were a kid were rock stars. I just wanted to be a rock star yeah. like that. To me, that was all. I just wanted to
1: be on stage and playing music and 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 making people happy that way. And I tried, <laughs> believe me, I tried. Um, and and it, you know, like for most folks, it just didn't work out. And I think these days, like the people who inspired me early on, I think from from the UX world, it was like Jared Spool, right? So Jared Spool to me was a great storyteller, super successful, had a series of great conferences. Um, you know, was really kind of doing the thing that I was doing. Um, I was super impressed with Eric Reese as he was coming up, how how he was building sort of his voice and 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 his audience. Um, and then, you know, there are people who kind of do their, do the job well, but I don't really necessarily care about what they're – like, for example, I'll give you like Guy Kawasaki is a good example, right? Like, I've gone out of my way at South by Southwest and other events to go see him speak. Why? Because he's a really, really good presenter. Like, he, he tells a really great story. Do I care about what he has to say? Not as much, right? But I want to be able to present like him. Right, and and that to me is is those are the kind of folks who have been in, inspirational to me in the last sort of fifteen years to really kind of build this particular version of my career.
0: And who's the one musician, dead or alive, that you'd love to go out for a beer with? Oh, man, that's such a good question. There's so many. I'm also a failed musician, by the way. Yeah, name, so I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling a long this long
1: line <laughs> of us. I think for me, it's Prince. You know? Oh man, I, yeah. I mean, that's. You know, I remember um, I was doing a gig in Minneapolis one time, uh, a work gig, sadly, not a music gig. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I, was, I, was I was working. I was working. I call them gigs, but you know, <laughs> it's work <Yeah>. these days. <laughs> um, but I was I was working in Minneapolis one time, and uh, I accidentally, like, I was walking to meet the client for dinner, and I walked past First Avenue, which is the club where Purple Rain was recorded um, live in 1983. And it's in the movie Purple Rain, and like, you know, I and I walked past, and I was like, like I got goosebumps. Like I took selfies. I was so moved by this like random run-in. And Prince was still alive back then, right? It's like this random run-in into it. And so, um, yeah, it's got to be Prince.
0: What piece of advice do you wish you'd known when you were twenty years old?
1: I think this idea. I think I'm. It's interesting. So I'm 49 now. Uh, I'll actually be 50 next month, which is terrifying to say out loud, right? And I've never been more optimistic mm. in my life. You know, I think I think when I was 20, I felt invincible, right? right. I don't know that I was terribly optimistic. You know, like if somebody like, oh, you're going to be a teacher, I'd be like, oh, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know, no way, I'm going yeah. to do that, right? Um, I, I I think. I think there's th- this idea, and I'm desperately, desperately trying to teach this to my kids, right? This idea that living, like, live your life with an optimistic lens, right? Approach things, approaching things from a position of abundance rather than scarcity makes you a positive, optimistic, it gives you that positive, optimistic approach to life, right? The the working from scarcity makes you feel like, well, I got to get mine right away because it's not going to be there mm-hmm. tomorrow, and I got to hoard and knock people off and, and get out of the way. And when you work from a position of abundance, uh, you're optimistic, you're generous, you're collaborative, um, and it pays dividends. The the, it, the 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 return on that investment is exponentially bigger than any other way of working and that's that's the advice i would give myself it's funny you say because my daughter's 19 um and so this is the advice that i give her every day right i was like does she listen though well look let's put it this way she's studying ux design and lean ux is on her reading list so at this point i'm gonna say yes
0: she's listening (laughs) i wonder so do you think all of her friends know that her dad is the lean UX guy. They, I keep asking her if her teachers have look. There, there are not that many gut healths in the world, right? No, and you're the only one I've ever right. Known, yeah. And, and yeah. I know my
1: family, but I'd be my family. They're not that many, um, and so. But she keeps saying that her teachers have not made the connection, even though lean UX is on the reading list, and there's even hmm. been like one slide in passing so far in the semester that's mentioned lean UX. Um, they haven't come up to her and said. You know, her name's in the dedication. It says Grace, you know, to Grace and her <laughs> sister and her mom, right? Like, it, it's like, are you the Grace God Health that's in the dedication? of the Right. That'd be
0: my first question. Right? They,
1: they haven't, uh,
0: they haven't asked her yet. So I don't know. Oh, ho-hum. Oh, oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, if you think back into all of the presentations, pitches, public speaking you've ever done, what was the worst experience? Wow. Um,
1: what was the worst experience? There have been so many. Um, <laughs> no, been, no, not just experiences. No, they're all, they're not at all. Not awful Oh, okay. No, no. I'm trying to think <laughs> of like what was really, what was really tough. I was on, so I was on stage once at CraftConf. CraftConf is a, it's a developer conference in Budapest. Okay. It's big. It's big. There were a couple thousand, uh, uh, a couple thousand developers, engineers. So it's not really my audience, right? Not, 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 not that they're unfriendly, but it's not it's not my not my friendly UX and product crowd. <laughs> and and I'm up on stage on the big stage, um, and they were using a uh, so I wasn't plugging directly into the projector. There was a one of those TV switchers in right. between, you know. And for some reason, every now and again, key, Keynote has this random bug that when you're in presentation mode. And you're going through a switcher on a particular MacBook Pro or whatever. It doesn't like it, and this is what happened. And as I was presenting, all of a sudden my slides start flickering, and they go out, and they come back. And there's technicians running on stage and plugging and unplugging things. And I'm trying to tell a story and have a conversation with the audience, and you know you're starting to sweat, and you're losing your you're losing your your point, and you're forgetting what you had to say. Um, and Just trying to land anything during that was it was brutal, you know. And I came a long way to be there, um, and I really wanted to make a good impression on this community and bring them along on this kind of Lean UX ride that I've been doing. And, and that was pretty rough. Uh, it was pretty rough.
0: It, 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 it ended up
1: fine, I guess. Yeah. But like that one sticks out in my memory as is a is a very difficult presentation to pull off.
0: And we talk about risk and the risk of speaking in front of a crowd is that stuff can go wrong. And what I, what I don't like is when I hear people not wanting to even try because of that small chance that things go wrong. Do you have any advice for people, you know, if they're in a situation where tech goes wrong, what's the best way of, of dealing with it when you feel yourself getting hot and all the rest of it? Preparation. Look, the, the only
1: answer here is preparation, right? right. Stuff's going to happen. It's going to happen. Right. Whether it's on a big stage, a small stage, pitching a client, uh, pitching a prospective client, whatever it is, it's going to happen. The only savior you really have is preparation. Right. So at some point, if the tech is failing you, shut it down and keep going. Right. right. The only way you can do that is if you know your stuff. And so that's to me, it's it's rehearse, 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 rehearse. Right. It's funny. I had a friend I had a friend visiting me this weekend. And he's recently in his career started speaking and presenting and pitching for, for his employer all over the world. And, uh, and you know, he kept saying, he's like, well, people come up to me and they're like, wow, that was really good. Can you come and give this talk to my people? That type, type of thing. And I said, do you know why they're doing that? And, I, and he, said, he said, why? I said, how are the other talks at these conferences that you're speaking at? He's like, oh, they're awful. <laughs> I was like, that's right. I was like, because the bar is so low, right? People do the bare minimum to get on stage. If you do slightly more than the bare minimum, you're going to be perceived as very good. If you do just more than the bare minimum, you're going to be perceived as amazing. And so it's about preparation and rehearsals so that no matter what happens on stage, you can keep that conversation going.
0: And can you think back to a time where, Everything just went right. What was the best time you've ever come off stage and just thought? Yes. Um, yeah, so so here's the thing. So
1: and and again, this this is this is the thing that like I was I was telling like when people were like, oh, you're magic. So I gave um uh I've been lucky enough to speak at uh, at all the Mind the Product conferences. They have three around the world in London, San Francisco, and Singapore. Uh Singapore 2019, I was the keynote, I was the closing keynote at Mind the Product Singapore, and uh, I gave my talk, and every time I made some kind of a point during my closing keynote presentation, in my presentation deck was a photo of one of the speakers from earlier in the day with their slide up on stage talking about something similar that helped me make my point in my story. So my presentation literally had photos from earlier in the day, right? And I came off stage. People were like, what sorcery is this? <laughs> right? they're like, what? Are you a magician? Are you a wizard? Like, how are you doing this? And, and looking back at them and, and look, it felt great. Right. Yeah. But to, be, but to come back to my point, I was doing just a little bit more than the bare minimum, right? For, I had my talk written and prepared, done. Right. Um, but. I sat in the audience all day and I listened to the other talks. And when one, and every time one of the speakers, each of those, each of the speakers, cause I wanted to make sure I got them all right. Said something that was relevant to something in my story. I knew my story. I was prepared. I took a photo from my phone, put the photo in the deck and did that. And so I had every other speaker in my closing keynote. Um, what did I do? I paid, I listened, I paid attention. I was, I was, I was a, I was a, a good participant in the conference and I just summarized everybody's talking in my story. Right. And people like, people are like that's magic. Yeah. And that, and that felt fantastic. Right. Because, because again, the level of effort here wasn't that high, yeah. but the payoff was tremendous. Everybody was blown away.
0: I think that covers a couple of things, really. It comes back to your point of abundance, like rather than seeing it, I think some people think I want to be the best on stage, therefore it's almost like a competition, and to actually big up other people on stage, that's crazy, but that's yeah. scarcity, isn't it? Do it yeah. with abundance, and say everyone was amazing, This, these guys were all better than me, all the rest of it, and it actually right. makes you into the hero. And the other thing is, I think it's just thinking, you know, I hate the phrase, but I can't think of a better one right now. But just thinking outside of the box a little bit, you know, you've got to do a presentation. But, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't come up with any just wild idea and try it and stick it in. And normally it really pays off. It really does. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, you're—they give you a stage and a microphone.
1: You're ninety percent of the way there, right? Right. The the ten percent is preparation, but like the credibility is there. I saw who, I see? who was this? Um, I spoke at uh, oh, I remember who this was. I spoke at at Agile Australia, um, a few years ago. It was like their tenth anniversary or whatever. It's a massive event in, in, in Sydney. It's like a couple thousand people come it's, a, it's in a big kind of presentation hall or whatever. And, and it was, I think it was Jesse Sternschuss from Florida. Um, she handed out during her presentation, she handed out pieces of paper to every single attendee. She had them make a paper airplane and everybody threw the paper airplane and she connected it to her presentation. Right. Somehow. Right. And it was amazing. And it was fun and it was memorable. And, and everybody remembers throwing the paper airplane during that talk, right? She rolled the dice, right? She had she had a stage and a microphone and she's like, you know what? 2,000 people
0: are going to make paper airplanes. We're going to do this. Yeah. Right? And it was amazing. And that's how you get remembered. You do yeah. something, you create that anomaly that people are not expecting. And even if it's a bit crap, not saying hers was, but even if it is, if it helps them to remember you, it's such yeah. a powerful tool. Yeah. Exactly. And and, and
1: and again it's it's effort. It's yeah. effort. It's just and, and again, I'll say it again, whether it's a pitch or a presentation or a class or a training or whatever it is, any kind of story, the bar is so low. <laughs> People just don't put in the effort.
0: Yeah. That if you do, if you do,
1: you'll be a hero. Guaranteed. Yeah.
0: I've got to ask you one question. It's about something you mentioned earlier. What did you do in the circus? <laughs>
1: my my long running joke uh, is that I was the bearded lady now I actually had hair back then um, I had long hair uh, and I can show you some photos um, but um, but that's not true I was not the bearded lady oh. uh, <laughs> I, was, um, I was the sound and lighting technician I did sound and lights for the circus I ran the, the audio console and the lighting console for the whole show so
0: if people want to find out more about you or perhaps even, you know, obviously your books are on Amazon. What else have you got on offer that people can come and find on the world wide web? Yeah. So
1: the two two easiest ways to find me, Jeff got Everything is there. So that's the easiest way. Um, there you'll find my blog where I write every week on these topics. Um, You'll find links to courses that I've got both self-paced as well as kind of live online training and videos of these keynotes that we've talked about, including that Mind the product from Singapore is on the website as well. Um, And then LinkedIn these days, like Twitter, I've invested heavily in Twitter. We're sort of all curious about the future of Twitter at the moment. Yeah. Right now, if you want to follow me on Twitter, please do. I'm there every day. I use it. I love it. Um, I'm trying to continue to love it. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, but LinkedIn has been really good to me, and, and i am kind of got a lot of material being shared and conversations having there. So please feel free to connect. That would be amazing.
0: Jeff, you're amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Any final words of wisdom to close us out?
1: Remember that regardless of whether you're working on work or your career or even sort of life stuff as well, we're working from a set of assumptions, like the best guess on the, on, the, on the information that we have right at this moment. And if you feel like that's too risky, ask yourself how you might be able to test that idea, right? And, and I find that in almost every situation, there's an opportunity to test and de-risk ideas. Um, and if you challenge yourself, I think you'll find it too. And 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 it look, it's comforting. It's comforting because you may dodge a bullet, right? Or you may discover a thing that's like, wow, I really, really love this and I didn't even think I would. So that's what I would do.
0: This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity, and much more.